Hi, I'm Ben Ashby. This episode of Future Proofing Finance has a poignant difference to our usual programming. Our guest today is the dearly departed Patrick Bloomfield, who passed away unexpectedly in September. When we were originally looking for guests for this podcast, Patrick's name came up several times as one of the leading industry experts. This was great for me because I knew Patrick personally for over 30 years. We have spoken to his family and they very much asked that this interview goes out and our love and thoughts are with them at this time. Patrick brought curiosity and charm with him throughout his career. He was a leading figure in the pensions industry for more than 25 years joining Hyman's Robertson in 2004 and being made a partner in the firm in 2006. As well as his work at Hyman's Robertson, he chaired the Association of Consulting Actuaries between 2020 and 2022. I knew him both professionally and as a close friend, and I'm sure you'll hear from the conversation he was an absolute joy to spend time with. So, welcome, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Hello, Ben. Hello, Tom. Lovely to be with you today. So, as a former banker and somebody that's been involved in asset liability management, I know what actuaries do. But as I was prepping for this call and I was asking for ideas, somebody said, what do you actuaries do? I just know they're very good at sums and they're like more boring versions of accountants. Is that the right way of looking at things? Yeah, you've more or less nailed it there, Ben. Thanks very much for that intro. Um, when, uh, when I was a younger man, I used to hope that someone would think I'd said actor. And then I'll go on to explain what I was auditioning for that was coming up. But uh, actuaries are, we do sums about death and interest primarily, where there's some future uncertain event that money's going to change hands on, actuaries do the maths behind it. So insurance and pensions are the historic specialisms of actuaries. My personal specialism is in pensions. Um, Obviously, you keep paying money while someone's alive, or you pay some money when someone dies. Those are the two obvious products. And actuaries have branched out into general insurance and all other sorts of insurance since, and filtered their way into different bits of financial services too. Great. So what does a consulting actuary do? What does a scheme actuary do? Right. So scheme actuaries, we are defined under Section 47 of the Pensions Act 1995. Remember that. There's going to be a quiz later. Um, It is a position that any UK regulated pension fund needs to have filled by somebody who's appropriately qualified. So it's the person that puts their professional name on the line saying the numbers here are okay. And it's about the extra layers of regulation that get wrapped around final salary pension schemes in the UK. It's like a fit and proper person's regime, but also including appropriate professional training, continuous professional development, those sorts of things. Great. You've already lost me, Patrick, with your, uh, with, your, with, 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 with your fast words and your actuarial uh, stuff. Can you break it down to me a bit more simply? Like if you think about um, something that's happened uh, incorrect, like over the last little while um, that perhaps wasn't handled well by actuaries, I'm thinking about maybe the asset liability matching in the UK for the pension schemes or something like that. You can, you can maybe just uh, make it make it a bit more tangible. Yeah, sure. So the, the sorts of day job things that I would do as a scheme actuary is all of the calculations to do with the liabilities. So the first thing we do with a pension scheme is you look at the membership, you look at how many years they've served, what they were getting paid, and you project forward the benefits that are going to be paid to everybody. And that's what provides the the hedging benchmark that the asset managers are going to hedge against. So I think the kind of things that you'd have in mind there, Tom, would be the closeness of matching between um, an interest rate or an inflation hedging program against the kind of liability benchmark that I would provide. Got it. So I guess... uh... One of, one of the interesting things to hook into here then would be 
um, expected uh, life expectancy um, on the one side, and then obviously there's the assets and the pricing on the other side. But maybe you could give us a little bit on uh, life expectancy and how that's changing, because that's not something that uh, you know I, I follow very closely. I'm not sure about you, Ben, but uh, obviously I'm I'm interested as both a human um, and as a subset of uh, your uh, statistical tables. It's one of those quirky things, actually. We get ridiculed for being dull, and I'm certainly going to do my best to change opinions on that today, but we'll be the judge at the end. Um, when it comes to life expectancy, we're all a little bit quirky about it. We want to find out why. So if we go back a couple of decades, general rule of thumb, life expectancy was increasing by about a couple of years a decade. And we've had that more or less, more or less since the post-war period. Um, that's a really big rate of increase. That's a much faster rate of increase than we've seen in the past, um, mainly coming from dealing with infectious diseases, then dealing with coronary heart disease, taking care of smoking, those sorts of wins. We then fast forward up to the pandemic of a few years ago, and we were still seeing these really strong trends of future improvements coming through. And then it cooled off. And we as a profession love data. Without data, we're a little bit lost. So we're in this position of saying life expectancy improvements have cooled off. Is it a blip? Or is it the beginnings of a new trend? And that's where we're starting now to get recalibrations of data coming through over the last couple of years and seeing how's the effect of COVID becoming an endemic disease starting to present itself. And a couple of months ago, the Continuous Mortality Investigation Bureau of the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries, nice people, invite them around for dinner, they'll probably be free. Uh, they put out some latest data saying that life expectancy was potentially down by about half a year compared to previous projections. And that's having seen how COVID's beginning to settle down. So we're now digging into the layers underneath that saying, is that COVID itself as an endemic disease? Is that, is that knocking half a year off life expectancy? Or is it the ripple effect of the extra pressure it's put on society, extra pressure it's put on the NHS, those sorts of things. So the, the projections we make from here, they are hugely inherently uncertain when you think about pandemic diseases and medical advances. These are some big Hail Marys that we're trying to model. But within that, we get quite tight on, on monitoring individual causes of disease and whole population levels. So as actuaries, we can, we can forecast pretty reliably by um, different levels of affluence what the um, different life expectancies will be overall. So wealthier people tend to live longer, better educated, better access to healthcare, better able to look after themselves, better lifestyles in the first place. And uh, less wealthy people seem to have lower life expectancy. And we see that very clearly demonstrated. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is quite a, an increased stratification of that that the wealthy have continued to do better and the poor in society have not done so well. So it's, it's a really interesting picture coming through, but we, we think there's going to be quite a lot more change there. And that's, that's certainly influencing appetites for longevity reinsurance and bulk annuity products and things like that at the moment. So bulk annuities, all the writers tell me that this is a great opportunity to get involved in the market. They've obviously been writing policies over the last few years at much lower yields. So I kind of get slightly mechanical argument, but does that not now mean that they've basically embedded a lot of problems for what they've written in the past? How would you view things? That's a really interesting question. There's a few elements to that. I think um, in terms of issues with what's written in the past at lower yields, um, I think you can strike that off your worry list. It, of course, it's an ongoing piece to be managed, but um, when, a, when a pension scheme does a buy-in or buy-out transaction with an insurance company, so buying a financial product called a bulk annuity, they will 
either be paying them cash or they'll be novating across assets that the insurer can receive. Typical investment strategies for bulk annuities are very heavily into credit of, of all sorts of different flavours, but they're usually stratified um, credit portfolios. So they will have purchased on a, on a prevailing yield big bond portfolios and then mark those to market if they've gone through and mark the liabilities against them as well and carried a very large capital risk buffer in the insurance company too. So you, you might be thinking at that point or alarm bells ringing, what's happened in the banks where the banks have marked down their bond uh, portfolios. In insurance companies, they may have marked, that, marked down the bond portfolios, but they will have been marking down the liability obligations to go alongside them as well. And they tend to be well-funded and closely matched. So I wouldn't expect to see anything like the same pressure that you've seen on the uh, on the banking side coming through in insurance for, for past policies anyway. Um, for future policies, we're really seeing this as a... I think I'd call it a red hot market right now. And it's been a structural market for a very long time. So if we take a step back and look at um, the UK landscape of, of DB schemes that we have, sorry, defined benefit schemes, uh, there's about one and a half trillion sterling of, of assets in these schemes, give or take a bit less now than there was a year ago, of course, with yields having gone up and there being such big bond investors. Um, those pension schemes are gradually maturing, by which we simply mean the members are getting older and the more of them that retire, the more inclined they are to, to do a deal with an insurance company. Reason being the way pricing and regulation is structured around bulk annuities, it's about 20 pence in the pound cheaper to insure somebody the day after they retire compared to the day before. So the usual game plan is you wait until your members have drifted into retirement age, and then you go and look to an insurance company and you do a bulk annuity deal to secure their benefits. Then you can wind up the trust, job done. And that's the end of days for a pension scheme. Members are safely passed across into the insurance regime. The bulk annuity is converted into individual policies, all overseen by the PRA. Regulators are happy, members are happy, trustees are happy, and sponsors are happy. And it's that last one, the sponsoring companies, they, they by and large, for the last couple of, couple of decades they've had, they want rid of their DB schemes. It's been a financial millstone. So given a choice of uh, being able to get it off balance sheet, secure by the company, no more risk, no more uncertainty, most of them want to head for that exit. Um, what we've seen in the last six, seven months with, with yields having crept up, probably actually since last summer, yields creeping up and then spiking in September, October and coming back again, um, DB funding positions are an awful lot stronger. And estimates in the industry around there's a quarter or a third of pension schemes could be within the kind of funding zone where they could do a deal. Now, that doesn't mean they're actually able to because there's all sorts of practicalities and operational things that need to be got through, like tidying up schemes data, going back over old rules and making sure there's no skeletons in the closet. We've got other things going on in the industry, like uh, court cases about equalising uh, guaranteed minimum pensions, where we all used to opt out of the state scheme. All these other headaches that are going to take a couple of years for most schemes to work their way through, but they've got enough money to go shopping with. And that's the key thing. So if they're, if they're in that place where they have the money to be able to do a deal, that's the part that the insurers are really saying, hey, investors, look over here, look at us, we can see a fabulous market. And it's been there all along. That structural uh, deal has been there all along. And when I think about some of the new monoline insurers that have sprung up in this space, uh, the likes of, of Pick or Rossay, they were invented purely to target this market. All we've seen in the last year is lots of schemes rushing into the kind of uh, asset valuations where they can afford the, afford the bulk annuity price point. So I've got a lot of questions there. 
I was at a, a breakfast the other day and there was a professional investor and they were making the point that when yields spike again, are we not going to get another round of problems similar to what we saw with the liability driven investment? I was just wondering from what I hear there, you don't think that's the case. I was wondering if you can give us your sort of overview. And I know you had flagged to me previously about there was risks in these schemes long before anybody else had mentioned it. But is there anything else like that? Is there anything we would be concerned about if there was another big move up in liabilities in the short term? Right. So there's, again, quite a bit to unpack in that. But let's take a look at what happened through last year. So through 2022, we saw yields steadily rising from pretty early on in the year right the way throughout. And then we had the, the mini budget and things spiking in October, uh, September, October time. Um, it's the period before that that I think history is really going to look back on. We'll remember it for the mini budget and the bond spike and the Bank of England intervention, but it's the run up where we've had this uh, fabulous economic experiment of quantitative easements since the GFC. And what really happened there was pension schemes being very heavily regulated into buying bond assets, especially buying gilt assets, which are considered to be a mark to market close match for pension liabilities. And QE rode, uh, rode gilt yields down to historically low levels, so into negative real interest rates, really uh, remarkable territory, the kind of stuff that when I qualified as an actuary, you didn't really think was credible. We modelled it, but we never thought we'd actually use it. And we lived through that for over a decade. So what we saw was sponsors of pension schemes being required to pay additional money into their schemes to get their funding up and then de-risk the investments by buying more and more gilts at these really heavily inflated prices because yields were so low. The part that was unusual about what happened last year was the speed with which it reversed out, brought about by political events. And that, I think, is probably the one takeaway from it that will endure. Otherwise, it's the, the systemic shift and rapid correction is what we've really seen here. So um, what do we learn from the experience and where are we from here? Well, we've seen um, Bank of England, TPR, uh, PRA all saying... 250 basis points of collateral cover should be enough for defined benefit pension schemes. We expect everybody to have clearer collateral waterfalls around that to manage it. To be frank, most schemes were there at the start of 2022. The issue was, as yields rose, they needed to keep replenishing their capital buffers to keep 250 from where we are now. And as we rolled on another quarter, it's another 250 from where we are now. And it was the speed with which it happened that was the issue. So to my mind, setting a, a capital buffer and making it universal across the industry is arguably a step backwards. I think you're more likely to make the systemic risks and the systemic concentrations even more pronounced. All you've done is set a bigger firebreak before you get to the point that it spills over. So I, I don't think there's anything here that addresses the systemic risk personally, quite the opposite. Um, so we get this um, issue at the moment that we see TPR looking at this, Work and Pension Select Committee looking really closely about systemic risks in defined benefit pension schemes, Bank of England looking at it as well. And I think we're just moving the problem around the board rather than really trying to tackle it, because tackling it would mean letting the free market decide what everybody wants to do for themselves and letting them all do something different. And we have this perpetual sort of tug of war between protect the members, de-risk, invest in something safe, that's government bonds is the usual mantra against the safest thing for industry as a whole and society as a whole is to have a breadth of different strategies playing out. Some win, some lose, and we're happy for a couple to go to the wall. It might be worth mentioning TPR being the pensions regulator. Yes, we, we love our TLAs in pensions. Yes, three letter acronyms. The pensions regulator, um, Prudential Regulation Authority uh, oversees uh, insurance companies. The pensions regulator oversees uh, pension schemes in the workplace sector. So that's anything offered by your employer.
So what happens when a scheme breaks, uh, basically, or runs out of liquidity? Is the sponsor required to put more money in? Do they have to sell more uh, assets? What is it? What's the actual process? And where do you think we are now? Yeah, so we're getting into the nuts and bolts here of funding versus liquidity. So funding is you have enough money to uh, on your current balance sheet terms to be able to pay the pensions as they fall due over the life of the scheme. Now, of course, we're projecting out payments 80 odd years into the future, maybe longer. You don't need all of that money today. We never needed all of that money today. Pension schemes tend to be one of the investors that look for a liquidity premium. They can take it and they can earn it because, hey, they didn't need the money today. Um, where we get into with liquidity issues is really about posting collateral. And that's what LDI was all about. It's about structured products that post short-dated collateral against long-dated um, positions with some degrees of gearing. And there's quite a variety out there about levels of gearing that went on in the industry as well. And as everything, just before there's a big market event, with hindsight, you always look at it and think perhaps that was running towards the edges of what was credible knowing what we know now so we were seeing liquidity levels had been run thin by the way markets have moved leverage levels had been run up and pension schemes had traded down a lot of their available liquid assets to turn them into cash to post as collateral against their um, their hedging positions on interest rates and on inflation where it started to get sticky and this is where it really came home to roost in uh, in september october time when the bank intervened was um, remaining assets, a lot of them being illiquid, so perhaps property funds or the like, or PE funds that were getting gated on withdrawals, or simply the, the act of selling longer dated gilts to convert them into cash because you needed to, cash, uh, to, to post cash for collateral was then further depressing the price of what you were trying to hedge. And then that was what was leading to this pro-cyclicality that was concerning the Bank of England. So the bank stepped in to offer itself as a buyer to stabilize what had become um, uh, an unstable market. And we are now seeing a public debate about whether the pensions regulator is given an additional statutory objective to also have a view to financial stability, which is an interesting outcome, which will sit alongside there two already irreconcilable objectives about protecting the pension protection fund, which is where schemes end up if the sponsor fails, and uh, enabling the um, sound economic growth of sponsors. So pensions regulators are being tasked to do everything depending on which horse was the last one to bolt out of the stable. Speaking with a lot of uh, my CFA colleagues, I mean, we, we spend a lot of time on valuation and looking at how things can change over time. You just touched on the liquidity uh, premium, but also um, you've obviously got enough time to, to make that work when you've got 80 year uh, time frame. But uh, how does that, how, how do you think, how do you look at that uh, market, you know, market pricing for liquid investments or how do you mark books when they're big and complicated and you have these events or even just in general? Yeah, so um, we're into a bit of um, funding regulation, I suppose. We, we're led by asset values nowadays. So this was, was set out in Pensions Act 2004 and before that in Pensions Act 2005 of actuaries book assets at their disclosed market value that goes, goes in audited accounts. So we're very reliant on that audited accounts value. So it's this typical capital asset pricing model theory of the market will be right. Where you've got a liquid assets, of course, you're using judgment, you're filling in those gaps. There's usually some stale pricing and some time lags. So where you're using audited accounts, it's fine. You have the seventh month period for, for valuation lags to come through. But in a, a rapidly developing mark-to-market event, such as we saw last year, you don't have that same sort of um, visibility. So we were seeing assets, uh, illiquid assets, changing hands at discounts of 20, 30, 40% through that period. 
and it's carried on for some time afterwards. And we still have operational issues about that availability of data information, uh, data and information coming through. Um, there's, there's even some instances I've seen where a bit of regulations from 2005, this is the uh, Occupational Pension Scheme 2005 regulations, requires assets of a defined benefit pension scheme to be predominantly on regulated markets. Now, that's as specific as the words go. So that, that, that's tended to be a shorthand of at least half and listed somewhere and listed somewhere decent. So illiquid assets, um, because of that stale pricing, as we saw bond valuations, particularly listed bond valuations, crunch down. I mean, we, we were seeing linkers half in value over the kind of period in question. The value of illiquids in a portfolio was unexpectedly becoming higher. And we've seen quite a few schemes bump up against this 50-50 rule where they were never supposed to be anywhere close to it. You know, a lot of schemes, um, allocations into liquids might have been 15, 20 percent, maybe pushing it up to 30. And if you're at that level start of 2022, you will have almost certainly run some issues this year with this predominantly invested in regulated markets issue. And it was never supposed to be there. I mean, this this old piece of regulations was to stop tiny pension scheme investing in collections of wine and works of art and things like that. It wasn't supposed to stop money going into patient capital and infrastructure and VC funds and those sorts of things. So we get this odd issue in pensions that bits of regulations that were born out of several decades ago are still with us today and we still have to operate with them. Can I just jump in about the assets? There's a lot of talk at the moment, I know, around the insurance industry about uh, changing the uh, legislation around solvency too, about more infrastructure type investing. We've had a number of guests on here who are very keen to try and promote long term venture capital type investment into the UK. How do you see things? Because describing what you were saying earlier on with these maturing processes and maturing funds, it seems to me that there's going to be more and more stuff going into fixed income, which Seems like a terrible use of capital, to be honest. <laughs> well, terrible use of capital from whose perspective? Um, so, again, you, you can see the theme here about if you're going to work in pensions, you need to be a keen history of student. If we go back to a lovely case of 1984, Cowan versus Scargill. So for those of you with Antipodean accents, um, back in the 80s, we had a coal sector that was a lot larger than today. Our miners went on strike and Arthur Scargill was the face of that in the tabloids. Um, Arthur Scargill was campaigning that the mine workers pension scheme should be able to buy up and invest in mines to keep them going for the benefit of the workers' jobs who those pensions related to. And this, this really famous case, the reason I remember it and could go back to it is because it's, it's, it's been a live topic for us an awful lot recently, particularly to do with TCFD. Where, where the courts came down on that is the money in a pension scheme needed to be invested in the best interest of the beneficiaries. And when pushed further to refine what that meant, it distilled onto the best financial interests. Now, that's really important because then we say, what's in the best financial interests of this defined benefit pension scheme? Is it investing in infrastructure? Well, no, it's investing in something that's going to give me a decent level of growth and match my pension, thanks. And provided I've got a strong sponsor standing behind me to pay some additional money in, if there's not enough in the pot, I want you to take as little, little risk as possible, please. It doesn't say that I've got any regard to UK economic growth, to jobs, to inflation, to broader well-being, to political agendas, to anything else. In fact, it goes further than that and says those are all irrelevant factors and I need to not even think about them. I give myself a slap on the wrist if my mind even wanders. 
So we come out of that, that we, we're supposed to look at best financial interest, which is why we're looking at bond portfolios, mark to market matching of pensions, and lots of, we sometimes call them cash flow driven investments. So buying assets where the cash flows in from the assets matches the benefits going out. The extreme example is a bulk annuity, which is your, your perfect hedging there. I mean, that, that's a one for one policy pays you the money you need to pay the pensions. So when you think about infrastructure and patient capital and how you want to sell it into that space, you need to package it in a format that they want to buy. So if you can package it in a format that's going to give them low default risk, predictable income, ideally contractual income, they'll buy it for sure. If you want to sell it to them as a VC fund or some CDO cubed, you're speaking to the wrong people. That's not what they're there to do and that's not what they can buy. It's a little bit different, though, in pensions if we break away from the defined benefit side of it and we look at defined contribution. So this is uh, where you've got your own savings pot and then when you get to retirement, you can either draw down from it or you can choose to buy an annuity for yourself. And that's that's what the predominance in private sector UK workforce has now. Um, that is a really open space for patient capital investment. And that's where the big inflows of money are happening. So to give you some idea, auto enrollment got going a while ago. It's enrolled an extra 11 million people in pensions. And we've got four out of five UK workers now covered in schemes. That's about 23 million workers. Most of that money is going into DC pension schemes. And there's a real role for those to be able to invest in capital, sorry, in infrastructure and patient capital, but you need the right fund structures. It needs to be packaged up in an investment fund, possibly unitized, possibly some other way that they can access. All sounds fine, I hear you say, and then you run up against some other well-intentioned piece of regulation from another point in time a little while ago that trips us up. And that's to do with the DWP and the pensions regulators quest on costs and charges where we've had stakeholder pensions, all to do with automatically enrolment now and putting people into automatically enrolled schemes. And so that no one gets ripped off, there's a charge cap there of 75 basis points that all the admin and fund management needs to be within that total. Most schemes, vanilla, vanilla schemes can invest in vanilla assets very easily within that threshold, buy pooled fund, buy unitized listed stuff and run the admin online really nicely at that kind of price. But to get access to, to good quality venture capital and more expensive funds with more management overhead, you just can't do it in that charge cap. So now we're seeing another lap around that block, figuring out how do we, how does the government exempt some funds from the charge cap requirements because it would like to encourage uh, investors, in this case, DC pension schemes, to invest in that space. There's been um, quite a lot of interesting, you can tell by my accent, I come from Australia, there's been quite a lot of interesting innovation from the super funds, we call them down there, which is uh, our equivalent of your DC funds. Um, and the way that they handle uh, investing into illiquids and VC or private equity and how they structure deals to get those um, hard costs, um, explicit costs down below uh, their caps. It's slightly different to the 70 basis points. It's a blended thing and it's quite complex actually, um, as far as I remember. But um, I was actually going to speak briefly if we're going to go into DC, because this is very comfortable territory for me, having done quite a bit of asset allocation and for most CFAs, I'd imagine, um, uh, on expected returns. Is that something that you look at? Um, in terms of, uh, obviously, we're talking ALM for the DBs, but for the for the contribution side, uh, we're looking at, you know, how do we look at inflation? What is inflation and how do returns get uh, modelled? I mean, I'm certainly interested. Have there been any changes since the change in uh, uh, the, the, the change in momentum from rates, uh, rates at zero to up? 
Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, anybody who runs ALMs will recalibrate them monthly, quarterly, whenever you can, I suppose. And you're looking at those kind of data inputs. And it's always that mixture of, of observed market and longer term economic theory that you're blending towards. Um, I think it's fair to say that the, the experience of the last year with inflation having spiked as high as it is was not well anticipated. So you're seeing that well out in the tails of distributions that will have been modelled. Um, in terms of the impact on pension schemes, the, the, most pension liabilities have some capping in there. So they're not fully exposed to inflation without any cap. They're also flawed at zero, by the way. So we, we tend to, the industry, be more concerned about deflation than especially stagflation is a crippler for pension schemes because you need the growth on the asset side. And when, when uh, inflation is going down, benefits grow in real terms because they're flawed at zero. So we have this interesting kind of corridor um, where, where we've seen the issues coming through have been more on the on the risk asset side where you see inflationary or GDP growth related pricing models and trying to get some view on where's the future of the economic, uh, where's, where's the UK's economic future going to go, what's GDP growth likely to be, and probably the, the, the bigger macroeconomic question of will we ever see some productivity growth in the UK again, and where's that going to come from? So we love inflation models that act, as actuaries, and we look at them an awful lot, and we get really deep into the weeds of hedging, but it tends to be in quite a tight corridor rather than being super hung up on the big spikes that we've seen recently. Probably the the broader lesson I'll draw out of that about the role of ALM and what people are taking from it as practitioners is, I go back to the old nice decade, non-inflationary consistent expansion, back end of Tony Blair's era, that kind of thing. Um, we just forgot the distributions had tails or we really underplayed the weight of them. And we've seen some pretty big experiences in the very recent past that remind you that they're out there. I mean, uh, Russia invading Ukraine was always possible. Did we really think we'd see it after Crimea? No, we didn't. And we'd have seen a different political reaction. So I, I had a conversation, or this is going back to height, height of the LDI issues and speaking with regulators at the time. I managed, I remember being on a conversation with the FRC about it, saying, well, in my risk register, should I have a, a Russian nuclear strike on Manhattan? It's possible. Would you like my funds to be holding enough capital and invested in a way that they could weather that? Or would we think that's a, a sufficiently remote risk that, were it to happen, it would be okay not to have 100p in the pound coverage. And it being a serious conversation, which in itself is really deeply alarming about where we are. So um, valuations and expected returns and what have you, actuaries, in inflation has been a biggie. The, the other thing that really uh, has affected us more, I would say, has been uh, coming back to define benefit schemes for ALM modelling. The way our regulator has encouraged us to use uh, models that look at returns on a risk-free risk -free plus premium model. So as we would call it in our industry, gilts plus for a shorthand. So we're looking at these gilts plus return models. And again, I go back to what I mentioned earlier with the prolonged period of QE, seeing nominal gilt yields below a couple of percent, giving you nominal equity returns of middling single digits if you're lucky. Those look like really low returns to long-term investors who had as much gray hair as I do. They look like really, really low rates of return to be presuming over several decades into the future. And now we've seen that reverse out very quickly. And it's coming to terms with those sorts of swings that, that cause some pretty big issues. And I think it's really that benefit of hindsight issue about it's felt like we were very short termist, but for about 15 years in the post GFC. And where we go next on that, again, feels like a pretty uncertain geopolitical question to me. Uh, and when I bring that back to define benefit schemes, they're set up to head into insurance companies come what may because they don't like the look of the political risks either way. Can I just go back to a point you asked earlier on? 
Uh, a lot of friends of mine who work in the public uh, sort of pensions uh, sector in terms of they're either trustees or they're kind of uh, government appointees, they always go on about the problem that they have with what's best for the pensioners and ESG commitments. Mm. You square that where they obviously have issues where you've got various groups that will turn up, try to lobby effectively a government board of trustees, but actually it's not necessarily in their best interest because you've got a clear defined return on one side and the nebulous benefits of uh, decarbonisation on the other side. Yeah, yeah. That's, so we, we, we'll run the arguments again past Scargill and Cowan from 1984. So uh, this was all about best financial interests. And if you look at that narrowly, you'd say best financial interests, I'm going to invest in the assets that will give me the most favourable risk adjusted returns and the closest match to my liabilities. So TCFD, why would I care? I'm interested in just matching the liabilities. That's a really narrow view. And then when you step back, you're saying, well, actually, transitional risks, policy risks, climate risks will manifest, and they will affect the allocation of capital, and they will affect the pricing of assets. We don't know what that will be. We don't know when it will happen. We can estimate some different possible paths through it, and NGFS being the, the obvious market standard for transition pathways. When we look at them as an economic risk stimulated by response to climate change or anticipation of climate change, then all of a sudden everything clicks into place and it works. That we can map it across to an economic outcome. We can consider whether or not it's factored into valuations and we can consider whether there's something else that's not come into the market price yet. The most obvious one would tend to be here. If you've got externalities that haven't been priced and made internal yet, will that get forced through by some kind of carbon pricing? Or will markets just react and capital um, allocation become more efficient and the repricing follow? And when you when that penny drops and you buy the argument that climate change will lead to policy, will lead to a reallocation of capital and repricing, all of a sudden it does affect your best financial interests. And it is part of the model that you need to take into consideration. And it's not some tree-hugging left-field nonsense. This is a fundamental public policy issue that's going to affect pricing of assets. And as you can probably tell by the inflections in my voice, that, that's been firmly my belief all along. And I think we, we've very quietly in the background seen material movements made in that in the pensions industry. So DB schemes over £5 billion of assets. They're coming up to their second year now of issuing TCFD reports. That's the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Schemes over a billion pounds. This is their first year reporting on them. So it's coming. We're going to have a pause before it goes below that threshold. Uh, I think it's 20, well, not 2026, I think, a pensions regulator or DWP are going to take a look at whether they push that threshold lower. But to be frank, a billion, billion pounds and up, you've, you've moved the weight of money already. There's a long tail of very small pension schemes, but you can get most of the bang for your buck just by targeting those big schemes. So it does fit, but you need to do a bit of mental gymnastics as we sit here today or sat here over the last couple of days to figure out how it aligns. And then once you've made those things aligned, we're seeing an awful lot now where early stage greenwashing of funds and financial analytics beginning to get washed out and it beginning to become more real. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really optimistic about this space, actually. Um, when I look at the, um, some of the predictions about inevitable events that are going to happen in carbon pricing, if we don't make changes, what will happen in weather patterns, what will happen in human migration, we'll actually see this stuff being forced through and it will be on us. So I, I, it, it's happening. It's already happening. It's not just a yet to come. Just a quick qualification, if I might. Um, the Network for Greening the Financial Systems, NGFS, you mentioned, um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit on um, 
Sorry, it was just an acronym that you mm. used without explaining. So oh, you've sorry. Got to lost some people. No, it, it, it happens. It happens to us all when we're talking uh, freely, and we should be. Um, but I just wanted to point it out. Um, what I was, I was actually going to ask you briefly on carbon accounting, if you've uh, mm. come across that, because I had a little dig into it. I was chatting to my wife about it this morning, as it turns out. Uh, she works uh, deeply in the space and is looking for solutions. It's not altogether that simple. Um, and uh, the solutions are not, there's, there's many people trying. Um, but I'd like to ask you if you've uh, seen any interesting models or um, ha- how you think that might play out, because that's the, the other part of what you're saying is how do we measure this um, and report on it? Yeah, I, I think there's a long way to go on that. Yeah, there's, there's some really interesting research on it. But the barrier will be broad scale uptake of common models, I think, and finding something that everyone can get behind. So I, I don't know if it's as simple as a VHS and Betamax kind of contest or whether there's more to it, but there's there does need to be standardization of the models here. And the, the biggest area that we see as, as data gaps at the moment on the pension side is unlisted assets, private sector assets, for sure. We don't get the same kind of visibility there. And then even on the listed, we're struggling for scope three emissions. So these are the emissions of um, everything that's beyond your immediate control that, that, that your products and your business affect. So there's a long way to go in those things being bottomed out. But when I compare that to the standing start we were all on three or four years ago and the ground that we've covered, I think it's just moving at a tremendously rapid pace. And we've seen regulators and governments very willing to take a stance and push financial institutions to make these things happen. And we're starting to now see the first couple of years of reporting coming out and it's already flushing out commonalization standards. Everyone's everyone's comparing the notes and sharing their homework. So I feel pretty optimistic that it's going to come through. But if there's a silver bullet that's out there, I'm afraid I haven't seen it yet. I don't, I don't think it's immediately obvious, but I, I, I was interested in your view because uh, it's, it's immensely complicated depending on how perfect you want to be. And, and your point is a good one. You've got to start somewhere and the start's been a good one in that you know, people are doing it and they've been forced by the regulators, but they've been you know, in, in, into doing something that you know, hopefully will keep everyone to uh, account and then get better over time. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Patrick, I think we're running short of time. So I just wanted to uh, finish up with a standard question we have a lot of our guests. Rolling forward, say, 20, 30 years, where would you see your industry? Where would you see, say, uh, the investment industry? And how do you see perhaps new technology and disruption coming in? I know that's an enormous area, but... Right, we've got another 45 minutes for that one, Ben. Okay. You've got 12 seconds. If you could tell me lottery numbers of what male fashions will be, that would be even better. In three words, please, Patrick. Three words would be um, wholesale, digital, and... Can I make population wide one word? We'll grant you that. A hyphen in the middle. Hyphen. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks, Rich. I, I think mass market. Absolutely mass market. So we are pension dashboards in the UKs have stuttered. They've just had a, a policy restart, but they are gonna come. We are gonna put pensions on people's phones in the same way that you do your bank account and are beginning to do your mortgage. That will be transformative. I think that's the beginnings of the UK population starting to become a bit more like our friends over the pond with 401k plans in the States and thinking more about their investments. So 20, 30 years time from now, I think we would anticipate uh, a higher level of broad financial education and awareness in a population more conversance with the kind of decisions that they're going to need to make. And everyone will know someone who's been through them and have someone to talk to. There will be people deciding, do I take my money at retirement? Do I leave it invested? Do I buy an annuity? Those sorts of things. Which funds are yours in? Which funds are mine in? What are you paying? That kind of stuff. It's not going to be the most fun dinner party conversation, but it will happen. And I think we'll also see, um, in terms of the services provided into it, huge amount of digitalization. So lots more 
guidance rather than advice and a clarification of that boundary. So we'll be able to help people get to the races a lot quicker and preserve this really expensive one-on-one financial advice piece for the high-end, high-impact decisions, which is where it needs to be. And we're quite a way off that, but we're starting to see that policy agenda roll out. And I think 20, 30 years from now, I'm optimistic that there will be a lot of that in play. Everyone will have seen it. And I mean, at the moment, median household wealth, half a million pounds, just under half of that is in pensions. I think that's going to continue to be the case and we'll see that proportion grow, but people will feel that and appreciate it more. So in the way that everyone likes to know what the neighbor's house costs, I think we're not quite going to be there on pensions in 20 year time, but at least you'll have a sense of what your own pension's worth. Thank you very much for your time today, Patrick. Really appreciate it and uh, had a great chat. Thank you very much. Very much, Patrick. Never thought I'd giggle uh, on on a podcast with an actuary, but uh, here we are. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This concludes our conversation with Patrick. On a podcast like this, this is where we deal with the developments and new frontiers in our industry. It's important to remember the people in our lives who make all the difference. Patrick was outstanding and he leaves behind a legacy of excellence that will stay with the people who knew him for many years to come. I hope you'll all join us in wishing his family the very best at this time. Thank you.